0: Success isn't as complicated as you think it is. I mean, litigation, honestly, 90% of this, file your lawsuit, take your key depositions, compel your key documents and discovery, get a trial date and keep it.
1: That's Michael Cowan, acclaimed trial attorney and the host of the Trial Lawyer Nation podcast.
0: Yes, you can do a better deposition. You can always learn more. But the fact is just get a plan, be aggressive, get your case moving is 90% of it.
1: I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory, crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Michael Cowan to discuss what it takes to become a thought leader in the legal industry, the importance of mindset when it comes to your success as a trial attorney, and how doubling down on your strengths will take you further than focusing on improving upon your weaknesses.
0: One day I just made the decision, I'm going to have the guts to stop taking the smaller cases and only do this. I thought, I can always go back and get smaller cases. Uh, you know, i would had some conversations with my referral partners saying, look, I'm just not going to take these types of cases anymore. and. Lo and behold, when I did that, now we have a hundred and something trucking and company vehicle cases at the firm.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Michael Cowan is a trial attorney, author, and the host of the Trial Lawyer Nation podcast. As a result of his books, his podcasts, and his big rig boot camps, he's become a thought leader in the legal industry. We began our conversation by looking at the reason he decided to enter the practice of law, his love of debating.
0: I've always liked arguing. Well, actually, I liked arguing a lot more when I was younger. Now I like winning. I'm not so much arguing isn't so much what I like anymore. I like the debate. I like the going back and forth. It it seemed interesting to me. Even my senior year of college, I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a lawyer Ironically, I knew I did not wanna be a plaintiff's lawyer. I had a low opinion of plaintiff's lawyers. I did not believe in the tort system at that point in my life. In fact, there was a guy named Bill Summers who founded an organization called Citizens Against Lawsuit Abuse. And right before I started my first year of law school, my uncle and I had dinner with him and I promised I was gonna be one of the quote unquote good lawyers that would help businesses and not go after them. (laughs) Life changes. And then when I got into law school, like I said, I, I thought I wanted to go into international law. I didn't know what international law was. I just knew I liked to travel. And I was going to go the traditional route, you know, big firm. And I ended up working for a couple of plaintiff lawyers during the school year. I worked for one after my first year for the summer. And then, so I would do the big firm job in the summer, but I needed money during the year. And so I worked for a guy named David Nagel my second year, and a guy named Jim Malios, my third. And I really loved... Loved it. I, it was more fun, more entrepreneurial. So that even when I went away and worked at a big firm, I was comparing that experience to how much more fun it was to work at a plant firm when I was a student. And, and speaking of
1: entrepreneurial, were you entrepreneurial from an early age? Like, was this kind of something that you grew up with led to eventually starting a firm of your own? Actually, my dad was entrepreneurial. My dad had his own uh,
0: used car lot, had to come up the hard way and ended up doing pretty well in life despite starting off with, you know, absolutely nothing. I had to really work on the mindset to become entrepreneurial. I went to work for somebody. I ended up on my own because the person I went to work with just burned out and quit and became a federal public defender. I had about three weeks notice that that was happening as a three to four year lawyer. But it took me a long time to get my mind around that it was okay to run a business. I thought this was like an art or a craft. And, you know, you weren't supposed to like kind of like business and corporations and roles were bad. And this was like art and service. And It took me a long time to realize, one, it's okay to try to make money. And two, I can actually be a better lawyer and a better artist if my business runs right and I'm not always having to deal with a crisis or worrying about whether something got done.
1: I think I heard a quote from you once that you love the legal stuff. You've always found that interesting, which is great, but then just the the managing of the business was not always as fun. I'm just curious, like, was there a certain shift at one point or a certain catalyst that said, I've got to really focus on the business side of the practice?
0: Yeah, uh, I think a lot of it was bringing in a ton of money and and, and being broke. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I had enough legal ability to get some good cases to, and to get good recoveries on them. But I ran my business in such a way that I didn't necessarily end up keeping a lot of that money. And that was frustrating. So I think that was part of it. And then it was just a long, slow, you know, reading books, trying different things, working with different coaches you know, I think the effort probably started for me probably about 2008, 2007, 2008. And it's just been, I mean, I can name different people along the way that helped me, but it's just been a constant journey. I've learned a lot of legal things. I've learned a lot of business things. But the real important thing for me has been the mindset that I've learned to have. I think it's been
1: more instrumental to the to success than anything else. And if, you, if you're looking back, I mean, even over the last like even 10 years or so of, of running the practice, what what have been perhaps some of the greatest mistakes that you've made that you've learned from? Like what, what have been some of those lessons?
0: Okay, biggest mistakes I've made. One is entering into bad deals with other lawyers. I like to close things. I like to sell things. And so sometimes negotiating, I want to close a deal too bad. I want to bring someone in too bad and making a deal that wasn't great or not, not holding people early, not having hard conversations early on when other people weren't meeting their end of the deal. You know, they're doing the minimum of what's in writing, but not doing what they orally promised or not keeping up with what even they promised in writing, not saying it, not having, you don't have to say it in a mean way, but not just when something's bothering you, you need to let the other person know right away. Don't let things fester. I think those have been some of the biggest mistakes. Years ago, I bought a bankruptcy practice because I was going to diversify some. A Part of it had to do with a building I wanted to buy a building that was owned by a bankruptcy lawyer. The bankruptcy lawyer was underwater in the building. And in other words, the building at the time, she owed more on it than it it was appraised at. And so to get me to take over the note, I said, I'm not going to take over a note that's more than the building's worth. You have to throw in something. And so she threw in the receivables on a bunch of bankruptcy cases. And so we had to go do those cases. I don't think I did enough of a financial and market analysis and, and realized that if I'm not in there running it, and I don't have a system that's just robust that I'm taking over, so someone else can just run it for me. It's not going to work. Uh, and I ended up, I ended up giving it to someone else just to not have to the responsibility for the work anymore. So that was probably a mistake. Uh, we tried advertising 2013. You know, I've always had a referral based practice. I found for me personally the advertising model. I didn't have the funds to be one of the top three in the market for TV, and uh, that doesn't work. I believe in talking to a lot of people who have done it. If you can't be one of the very top ones, then you just get drowned out. I also just I realized I didn't want to run that kind of volume. That wasn't me, which is interesting because now I'm involved in another advertising firm, but I'm joint venturing with a person who's very good at that so that I can focus in the joint venture on the litigation part that I'm good at and let him handle all that. But I, I realized that you know there's a lot of money be made there, and I'm not at all – criticizing the model because there are a lot of cases that, you know, I'm trying to run more of a craft shop, a smaller volume, which works for a certain kind of case. There are a lot of cases that you cannot justify working like that. I mean, the client can't get justice because you can't spend the time on a $5,000 or $10,000 case, but the cases, those clients still need someone to represent them. I'm not ragging on the model, but it's not the model for me.
1: Now, there was something you just said that was very interesting to me, as you kind of said it in passing, and I, and I want to make sure that people listening to this podcast don't miss that, because it sounds like the wins in your life, the things where things have gone very smoothly, has not been when you've been developing a weakness, perhaps, but it's aligning with somebody who who has a strength, perhaps, that may not be a strength of yours, and you're focusing on on your own strengths. Would, would that be true?
0: Absolutely. I I used to really beat myself up on my weaknesses and try to overcome my weaknesses And I realized I was spending more time and energy on the things that I wasn't so good at rather than focusing on what I'm really good at. And so I'm over 50. I am who I am at this point. I am really, really good at some things. And I want to spend most of my life doing those things. And I've just learned, I just have a little humility. The things I'm not good at, I've found people that are really good at them. So, you know, identifying those people, finding the right ones, treating them and paying them very well. And my life is a lot better.
1: Over the past 25 years of practicing law, Michael's learned quite a bit. I asked him to speak to some of the most impactful lessons he's learned along the way.
0: The biggest lessons I've learned recently are value of a big case. Now, this isn't true for every case. so I'm not saying like if you have a chiropractor-only soft tissue case to hold out for a million dollars, because I've tried a lot of those cases, and I'm going to tell you, you're not going to get a million dollars very often, no matter how much you believe if your client got better in six weeks. But on, when you have a significant case, no one really knows what they're worth. And if you believe it's worth a lot and you hold out and don't show fear, don't show any interest in settling it, they will pay you a lot of money. So I, guess, I think that's one important lesson I've learned. And, and you kind of have to see it. Like the very first time we held out for a lot, I remember I was having to go back to people that had done it before and kind of have them hold my hand because it's scary. I mean, you have more money offered than you've ever had before. It's life changing money for you. It's life changing money for your client. You've done focus groups. You know, you might do a lot better, but you might get less, you know, if you went to trial, but you know, by holding out is the right thing to do. And it's scary when you first do it because you worry, will they pull the money? Will it go down? And no, they don't. If you have a good case, they don't pull the money. It, It just goes up. And I think every time you do it, okay, well, I got this much in that work. Well, next time, let's try to hold up for a little bit
1: more. Next time, try to hold up for a little bit more. So that's been a, a huge uh, lesson. I know you mentioned that some of the greatest areas where you've grown has been kind of in the mindset shift because what you've just described, I mean, that, that requires a great degree of courage, you know, patience perhaps as well. You know, somebody listening might say, yes, you know, that's easy to say once you don't need the money, right? But like, how do you, how do you hold out when you do?
0: Well, it is a lot harder when you do. And I will tell you the, the first couple of times I really had to find other people That had been there. That would talk me down, talk me off the ledge when I really want to take the money. And it is not easy. I mean, I'm talking some sleepless nights. I'm talking some real stress. You know, let's say you have like a a case you think is worth ten million dollars, and you've got eight million on the table. It is hard not to take that eight million, but you have to hold out, or you never get it. But yeah, I I think it is. I'm not going to pretend like it's easy. It gets easier, and it is a lot easier. You know, when you have enough saved up where, you know, let's say if I died tomorrow, I don't, I don't have to worry. My kids are going to go to college. My wife's not going to be on the streets. I mean, she's not going to have to sell the house. So it is a lot easier to hold out now. I'm not going to pretend like the first couple of times when you know I had borrowed so much money to fund the case that I didn't know what would happen if I lost it. And it was my biggest case and I needed the money
1: and my lines of credit were run all the way up. It was a lot harder to hold out, but I'm glad I did. And I believe at this point, you've handled over 100 trials. What would you say would be the difference between Michael Cowan and trial number one to Michael Cowan today?
0: I think I'm a lot less showy. I think I'm a lot more relaxed and real. I've learned to trust jurors so that I don't have to. Uh, it's less pressure now because I used to think I had to convince everybody it was all on me. Now I realize I need to trust people to do the right thing because that's what, that's the mindset that works as far as persuasion. And I just need to, I work a lot more on story now and a lot less on technique, if that makes any sense. I think the technique is more, it's more subtle, but more effective. I don't yell. I don't yell as much. I don't cry as much. I'm not saying I never raise my voice. I'm not saying I never get a tear in my eye, but it's not as blatant. Having more faith in the story and more faith in the jurors has been a, a big
1: difference. It feels like that's something that is really learned through just through experience, right? I mean, just getting in there, being in the arena.
0: I don't think it's just experience. I think I've had to work a lot at it. I've worked with coaches. uh, I've worked with a therapist. I worked a lot on getting past my insecurities, uh, my lack of trust, realizing that if you go in there not trusting someone else, if you go in there thinking this person might screw me over when you're talking to the jurors, that is going to be communicated nonverbally. You know, it's just kind of this probably I don't want to offend anybody, but just when I was younger and, you know, not like if you haven't had a date for six months, it is hard to get a date. If you have someone you've been dating, everybody wants to date you for some reason because you're not desperate. There's a different aura you're 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 putting off. And I think it's the same with the jurors. If you go in there scared, like they're not going to believe me, I've got to convince them they're out to screw me. There's all these tort form people trying to sneak on my jury. If you go in there thinking like that and not trusting them, that's going to come off. You're going to seem desperate. You're going to seem too pushy. You're going to seem scared. Whereas if you go in there thinking these are good people, they're here because they want to do the right thing. I trust them to do the right thing. So I just need to give them the ammunition. They need to do the right thing. If you go in there with that mindset, your nonverbals are going to make your message get received better.
1: And I'd love for you to speak further. I know you just mentioned about some of the ways in which you've invested in yourself, whether it's with coaches, whether it's therapists, all those different things, just what you've learned through that. And what advice you'd have to to other attorneys out there that want to grow and develop just everything from education to other resources and support. Yeah.
0: You need to invest in yourself. There's no better investment you can have than your investment in yourself. I don't care about the stock market, real estate in this profession, you are your most valuable resource. You know, I, I really suggest trying different things and seeing what works for you. Sari Delamotte is one person that's been a game changer for me, both on really making me a more dynamic speaker and better communicator, as well as helping me with mindset. She's done a lot of mindset work with me. She's expensive, but you know, if you want a Mercedes, you got to pay a Mercedes price. You know, you don't you want a Ford Pinto, you pay a Ford Pinto price. And so she's expensive, but she's really good and she's worth it. Working with Rodney Jew again, he's crazy expensive, but learning how to break a case down, learning how to present things visually has been big, you know, but just, you know, see, you know, who's out there and who can help. You know, there's other people that other people think are so great. And I worked with them like, "Eh, you know, that's just not my style or that doesn't fit for me. And so I'm not going to rag on them. They have their way. And, you know, there are lots of different ways to win a case. There's lots of different ways to succeed in life. So you got to find out what, what works for you, but definitely to keep to keep at it and it and it's a multi-decade process. It's not like at least for me I couldn't just okay I'm going to go talk to somebody, I'm going to go do a workshop, shop and a light switch is going to turn on and suddenly I'm going to be perfect. It's a constantly going back to the well and it's also it's not a straight line. You know, you're going to have okay, I've weeks where I'm doing really really well, then I slip mindset wise. You know, I I get down. Even this week, I mean, I had a blow out with my wife on Monday, Monday morning before I went to work, we had a big argument. I mean, we're better now, but uh And realized this was just not a good day and took the day off because I was just not going to be, you know, now I'd like to have my mindset such that I can just let it go, focus on work, be 100%. But no, I wasn't there. I'm not going to pretend to be like I'm this perfect person that's always mindful and always in the moment working on my
1: cases at a high level. But I'm a lot better than I was, let's say, five years ago. And, and Michael, I know you mentioned mindset a lot. It, it, you know, so There's going to be people that are listening that are saying, okay, the mindset stuff is great, but just tell me what to do, right? They want to hear the yeah. tactical stuff. And yet I find that some of the most successful entrepreneurs and trial attorneys, mindset is everything. What, how do you differentiate the two? Why why do you believe mindset is so important?
0: Well, because it's how you do the tactical stuff is the a, is a mindset and what energy you bring to it. The, the tactical stuff is really easy. I remember I looked at transcripts early in my career about, and I was learning to do product automotive product liability cases. And so Michael Watts was a great lawyer at the time was the, he was just really hitting for it. I mean, just boom, boom, you know, eight figure, eight figure, a couple of nine figure verdicts, just really hitting one. And I had, he had tried and won an F-150 rollover roof crush case in my county. I had another F-150 rollover roof crush case in the same county. And so he was nice enough. He gave me all his exhibits and he gave me his trial transcript. And I read like four or five trial transcripts. I'm like, cause you go to the seminars, you learn all this technical stuff. And then I read his stuff, and it's just like, this is really simple. Like, he doesn't mention all this technical stuff. It's just like, roofs are too weak. And when roofs are too weak, they smash down and break people's necks. And Ford knew that. And this is why they knew that. This is how they could have fixed it, but they didn't do something about it. You know, it was a real simple message. Uh, and I was asked kind of like, well, how in the world does he win with this real simple message? Because the, the success isn't as complicated as you think it is. I mean, litigation, honestly... of this file your lawsuit, take your key depositions, compel your key documents and discovery, get a trial date and keep it. I mean, it's not, and yes, you can do a better deposition. You can always learn more. But the fact is just get a plan, be aggressive, get your case moving is 90% of it. When you're getting ready for the deposition, you'll review the documents better. You'll think about it. Just, if you just get those simple things done, And I think the mindset comes in is is it's really, I know lawyers, I bring them in, I try to get them to do that. And they're like, well, I got to put off the deposition because I need to get a few more documents. Well, I need to put this off because I'm not quite ready for it yet. It's like, you just got to get in there and do it.
1: Yeah, I I will say this. I mean, it's just us in running a coaching company, we find mindset is everything, and we fight this battle in the sense that I believe mindset is the lens through which you see the world. So, meaning that that's going to dictate every decision you make and how you make those decisions. Whether you view, you know, let's say um, hiring a team member as an investment in that person or as a cost, right? Or your investment in marketing or investing in yourself, all these different things. I mean, even down the mindset, like you know, so much of what we've been talking about is having the humility and the vulnerability to ask for help to be able to say, hey, I don't know it all, or I can be better. I've found that some of the most successful trial attorneys are the ones that are taking the most notes, the ones that are the constant learners, and to perhaps some of the least successful are the ones that feel that they, they know it all. Absolutely, because there's always more to learn. There's always another way to do things. And so I'm curious, just as, as you were growing the firm, you guys now focus a lot on trucking. How did that shift occur? Like, how did you start to really start to focus in on that?
0: Well, I really like it. Uh, part of it was a, a courage thing. And so, you know, I've liked trucking for a long time, but I never believed that I could just do trucking cases. And we don't just do trucking cases, but uh, the general role is if, if we have to learn something new, it's gotta be a seven-figure case. So we do trucking and other seven-figure PI cases because I'm not not, a, not yet at a point where I have so many seven-figure trucking cases that I can turn down other types of cases. But generally, you know, most of what we do is trucking and company vehicle cases. And, uh, but we used to do the regular car wrecks. We used to do all kinds of stuff. And it was really, I, I remember I had uh, lunch with Michael Leiserman. You know, we'd both been at a hotel. He was nice enough to have lunch with me. And I really, like, you know, he only had a really small practice of really good trucking cases. I said, Michael, how did you get there? I mean, how did you get to the point You know, I'd like to be there where you only have good trucking cases. And it blew my mind. He just said, well, I said no to everything else. And it just never occurred to me. I thought, well, just organically, I would magically get so many that, you know, that's all I would get that I would to make room in my life for that. I would have to say no to other types of cases. And so at the time, you know, we were signing up 30 to 40 regular car wreck cases per month i didn't do a whole lot of work on them but the firm had them but they would percolate up to me so in texas we can advance clients money against their case and so you know somebody would get a we'd have to you know they interact they want to get a rental car they don't have rental car insurance so we would have to put them a rental car on a company credit card hoping to get paid back at the end of the case there would turn out to be no no insurance coverage and no liability client wouldn't want to have to get out of the rental car so i gotta stop working on my big case and go deal with the client with the rental car or you know our all sorts of other little issues. So it still took time and focus away from me. And so one day I just made the decision, I'm going to have the guts to stop taking the smaller cases and only do this. I thought I can always go back and get smaller cases again. Uh, you know, i would had some conversations with my referral partner saying, look, I'm just not going to take these types of cases anymore. And lo and behold, when I did that, you know, now we have, you know, a hundred and something trucking and company vehicle cases at the firm. Just, We told the universe that's what we were going to
1: do, and somehow it happened. And, and it also seems like there's a number of initiatives that you've done that really helped to build your brand and your brand personally, And it, it, from writing books to launching the trial or nation podcast, to hosting the big rig bootcamp. I want to talk about each one of those, but just what was kind of the thought process behind, I, th- I think the first book came first, right? That the book came before the podcast, right? Yeah, no, the,
0: the books, why well, I'm, I'm still working on my big trekking book. I'm hoping to get that out next year with, with trial guides, but I've, I have self-published a number of smaller books, uh. Honestly, uh, that was just, I went to some Ben Glass, uh, Great Legal Marketing conferences. I would went to some Dan Kennedy, Magnetic Marketing, or Glazer Kennedy, I think at the time was what they were calling it, conferences, and learned, you know, about, you got to make yourself an authority. You can't just wait to become organically an authority. You got to make yourself an authority. And part of that is by writing books. And so I just wrote a couple of uh, smaller books, published them myself, gave them away for free, but it, it did help get that up. So that was just very, that was a very intentional thing based on what I learned to try to make myself an authority. But I also found that having an abundance mentality, there's plenty out there and, and freely sharing what I know has been the best way to build, not only to build myself as an authority, but to get work. Instead of telling people, this is too complicated. I have the secrets. You need to bring me in because I know the secrets. Just here's what I know. I'm here to help if you need me. Uh, has been a
1: much better way to get work. Your podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. If someone were to go through and just listen to every single episode, because the podcast focuses really very much on trial practices, you're, you're learning from some of the best trial attorneys in the nation. I mean, if someone were just really listen to every single one, take notes, internalize it, learn it, develop it. I mean, it, it's, it's all you need, right? It, all the information's there. I'm
0: trying, and I, I really am. I may lack some of the basics on there, but, yeah. as far as for someone that's been been practicing for a while, I think it really would, would get you there. I, I try to do some basics, but, I mean, we don't do how to do a, a basic cross-examination or basic rules of civil procedure or something, but it's, uh, I try, you know, trial or nation did not actually start off with the intent of building a brand or, or marketing. It kind of started off on a lark, uh, believe it or not, and so have, I, have you heard the story of how I got into podcasting?
1: No, please, please share it.
0: I had heard the term podcast. I had never listened to one. And somebody I knew was on the Stone Cold Steve Austin podcast. And I listened to him because I watched professional wrestling when I was a kid. And so here was somebody I knew who's going to be talking to somebody I used to watch on TV. So I thought, well, that's cool. Let me go listen to David Clark on the Stone Cold Steve Austin podcast. And I uh, learned that there's all these podcasts. And at the time, I was training for a marathon. So I had like... You know, I'd be running for, you know, sometimes two, three hours on a training run. I've got a lot of time to kill. Let me start listening to some podcasts. And I was looking for a podcast that spoke to me as a plaintiff's trial lawyer. And with all respect to the people out there, at the time, I did not find anything that spoke to me. Most of them that were out there on our thing, they had like two or three episodes. They didn't put out very much. There was one, you know, it wasn't too bad, but it was all focused on the trial lawyers college. And I just wanted something that was broader. So I decided, well, let me just try try to start my own, see what happens. So I talked to Delisi. I said, I don't know if anyone's ever going to listen to this. Delisi Fridays, is our, our brilliant marketing director, but let's, let's just see what happens with it. See if we can get an audience. And so I just went there and said, well, who is it that I would want to learn from so that if no one else ever listens to this, I've gained something from doing this. And, you know, I started with people I knew that would know me well enough to get on, but also would have some, something that I'd want to learn. Uh, and I just went in with that attitude. And then, you know, we spent a little money marketing it to other lawyers. But it just kind of grew organically from there. And I, I never thought I'd, I never really thought about it being something that would get me cases or anything else. It was more just kind of, you know, a little bit to get my name out there, but more because,
1: I don't know, it just seemed like something fun to do. And now, you know, I believe you started in 2018. You're several years in. You've been so consistent with it. What kind of impact has this made on just, you know, your life, the practice, just, just overall?
0: Well, I'm, I'm like a like a D minus list celebrity, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I it's kind of neat that I go to places around the country and people come up to me and you know tell me that are you Michael Cowan? Oh, I love your podcast. You know, that's fun. Uh, I like that. It has resulted in actually me being brought into some fairly significant cases around the country, which I appreciate. Anyone that wants to do that, I'm very willing. Uh, you know, that's not the main goal of the podcast. The main goal is to you know, inform and and entertain the listener. But I certainly don't mind that being a secondary effect of it. And we do we do ask for I think we do have an ask in there in one of the ads now during the podcast, but it's still not nobody wants to listen to Michael Cowan for forty five minutes or an hour talk about how great I am or how you should give me business. the The hope is that if in me just being myself and providing good content, you realize I'm the kind of person you'd want to do business with because, you know, I think about cases, I work hard on cases, I'm going to treat people fairly, That maybe you would want to do business with me. I think that organically can happen. But to do a podcast with the goal of I'm going to promote myself, I have to say no to so many. You're one of the few people that provides, sells things to lawyers that I've allowed to be on my podcast as a guest because, you know, most people just want to come and pitch
1: themselves uh, and it doesn't work. No one wants to listen to an infomercial. Yeah, I I agree 100 percent. And we were talking about this even before we started the podcast of just there's so many legal podcasts out there. And, you know, you've built one that I would say is one of the most, if not the most successful trial podcast out there, period. Um, What is it that you believe that you do differently versus every other, you know, attorney law firm that starts a podcast? I think consistency has been a big one.
0: You know, I always I try not to ever get every now and then it happens because you get a trial or life gets in the way but I try to always have a few episodes in the can a few months ahead so that I'm never having to throw something together at the last second. So I think that's been a big thing. It's just, I've got someone in Delici Friday my marketing director that will make me. Michael, you haven't recorded. Michael, we we need something for next month and will stay on me and get me to do it. Because honestly, if I was trying to do this myself, uh, I've tried, you know, I used to try to do my own newsletter. Every time I try to do it just by myself, I would have two or three months of really good content and then we'd fall off. Then we'd come back again and we'd fall off. But having that, you know, we're twice a month. We haven't missed an episode yet. We're not going to. But it's because I have a really good person working with me who will bug me and speak to me and uh, say, you need to do this and remind me. And so I think that's one big key. I think the other second key is I really do find people that I want to learn from and the conversation is learning from them. And then when we do the internal ones, stuff that's going on in our own firm, it's really about sharing things. That we've learned in the hope that it can help others. And, you know, we always tell our our guests, you know, the first thing is to provide useful content to the listener. And so when you focus on how do I help, how do I serve my listener rather than how do I get my listener to give me something, it works a lot better.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I want to give her another shout out, Delisi, because you know we talked earlier about playing to our strengths. And I, I know that a lot of people know this, but even now as we're recording this podcast, I have three people sitting around me that are like working through this podcast <laughs> that will up like, in the production of this podcast. And I know sometimes people listening, they feel like they have to do everything themselves. They've got to do their own newsletter. They've got to do their own podcast. And the reality of it is it probably will never happen right, without a great person or a great team around you. I know that's been the case with you, but just, you know, she's someone that I'm sure that whenever you finish recording a podcast, gets to work and is like pr- promoting that podcast, marketing it, distributing it.
0: The only thing I really do on the podcast is occasionally I will need to send an email or make a phone call to get a guest booked. A lot of times, she, I you know, I, I would first say "Delisi, try to get me so-and-so or I heard so-and-so speak. Uh, But sometimes to, to get in, it needs to be lawyer to lawyer with lawyers to get someone to, to just because we get so many, you know, kind of spammy type emails and calls from vendors, it needs to be lawyer to lawyer. And then I do the interviews, and, and I prep for the interviews. Like if someone's like, I read your, like you had the game change. Is it the game changing attorney? Yes, sir. I got the book. I read the book before I, I interviewed you. You know, so I, I try to do a little bit of homework, uh, and then do the interview. And then once the interview's done, that's it for me. I mean. And part of it for me, if I had to learn to let go, I've had to learn. If we had to wait until I listened to the edits or if I had to listen to the podcast and tell someone where to edit, it would never get done. And so it had to be I need to find good people out there. And the problem in the marketing sphere is for every good person or good vendor, there's 100 people selling you a bunch of bull uh,
1: and just trying to take your money. Yeah, I mean, yeah. To your point, one of the things that you know we found, I mean, we call our podcast the Game Changing Attorney. You call yours Trial Lawyer Nation. But a lot of times, the the people that you feature on that podcast will help to shape the brand of that podcast. And if and a lot of it's defined by who you say no to, because if anybody can come on the podcast, then it's not the Trial Lawyer Nation podcast anymore, right? It starts to lose its you know its credibility.
0: And even the other attorneys, I mean, it just you know I've had uh, you know sometimes we don't play. Sometimes we're recording and we don't play because if you're just there. Like, I love to talk to people that just got a big verdict. And if you will talk about the story of your case and you would talk about what you did to get the big verdict, that's going to be great. If you want to talk about how you're such a badass and everybody needs to give you their cases so that you can get big verdicts on their cases, that doesn't help anyone. Like I said, an infomercial doesn't help. Uh, so, you know, we do have to be careful on who we have. And, again, to go in there and and, and also have people that are really w- willing to share, people that, again, have that abundance mentality that there's plenty for everybody so that – Someone else's success does not detract from mine, so I can share
1: my my knowledge with them. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that, just because I'm sure there's going to be people listening. And they're saying, you know what, I may not be ready to start a podcast of my own, but I'd like to be a guest on some other podcast. W- Who have been some of the most memorable guests that you've had?
0: I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, so I want I want to be really careful with this. Uh, I think Joe Freed and I really gel well together, uh, so I think ours have been really good. You were a good one. Sorry to Lamotte just because, again, we're so close. I mean, I, you know, I kind of remember them on the, on the uh, effects they have on me after the episode. I have to go back. You know, they all, they're all a blur to me. I'm going to be really honest. They, I'm in the moment. I'm recording them. I'm not thinking about anything else when I record them. And then I turn it over and then I don't listen to them again because I've already had the experience of doing that. I had one, I think we just went live or no, we're going live with John Fisher, a lawyer out of New York uh, on either tomorrow or the next, I don't know if we do the 31st or the first because again, I just know they come out twice a month after that one, we didn't have the same, like, we didn't know each other, so I didn't have the same feeling, like, emotional connection, but I had really good ideas, where, like, as soon as I finished the podcast, I went out to DeLisi and said, you know, he does these things we do, but he adds one more thing, like, you know, we have we have a mission, we have core values, we have the a, a strategies for success, and we actually start every meeting by repeating them so that we can keep together as a team and keep our focus but he had like he had a very specific after that and our goal is to get for him it was 500 referrals from 500 different firms and then he has a gong so every time they get a referral they bang a from a new lawyer they bang a gong and celebrate in the office i'm like you know maybe we can get something more tangible as a goal and then a bell or a gong you know when someone settles a case or we get a new referral source maybe celebrate as a as an office I don't know if we're going to do that or not, but I just, you know, I like it when I come out of there, I'm excited and I run to someone, hey, I just learned this great thing, you know. But unfortunately, I have to admit, after three years, they they do
1: blur. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I thought one of the ones you, I thought for sure you would mention is uh, not actually a lawyer, like David David Kochner.
0: David Kochner was fun. You know, uh, that was kind of, you know, we 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 were just going to have him do a cameo for one of our seminars, our big rig boot camps. And then he and Delisi, uh, Delici's just, I just had hired this amazing human being As my marketing director, and didn't even know how great she was going to be when I hired her. And she just started chatting with him and got him to actually do like a live interview with me, like a one on one thing during the, uh, our back. I was more the straight man, he was the comedy man. We did like a 30 minute segment during the boot camp, it's like kind of a comedic break. And then we got him on
1: just because he was famous, honestly. I didn't. But he actually was really good, and that was a lot of fun. And if, if for people listening who don't know who he is, if you could kind of share, because I mean, he's been an anchorman, anchorman to the office. I didn't even realize how many things he had been on until after I'd interviewed him. And then you know he he was in the movie
0: Waiting with Ryan Reynolds when Ryan Reynolds first came out. He's on Blackish. Uh, he's just on. He's on almost everything. He's a character actor, and he's really good. He's there's even some new dog competition show that he's now on. But he was a lot of fun, and he actually had a lot to a lot to say that I thought was useful
1: as far as. You know things we can learn from from actors yeah yeah i just just recall you he spoke about you know the power of storytelling and it's interesting to see that you know diversity of perspective as well so i'm just curious of you know when you know for for people listening let's say they want to come on uh, a podcast like yours or you know or any other legal podcast i know you, you mentioned the fact that like really having a great story to tell but what's something someone else can do just to get your attention tell me what you want what you
0: have to share if you have a story that is interesting to share, you don't have to have a billion-dollar verdict. Now, I've tried to get Mark Lanier to come on and share that. He's said he's too busy, and that's that's okay. Maybe one day I'll get big enough where Mark Lanier will get on mine. But he has, you know, a couple. He has over a thousand people show up live to his event, so he probably and he just uh, the Supreme Court allow him to keep a multi-billion-dollar verdict recently, so he doesn't need anything. <laughs> but uh, but in general, I don't think you have to have had a multi-million-dollar verdict to provide something useful. But if you have something useful that you have to share, that you think it would benefit other people, let me know. And if it moves me, i will love to have you on. And, and I can't give you like a rule. It's just kind of a gut feeling, you know.
1: Yeah, I think this is something that would be interesting. and Or no, I don't think that would be that interesting. And then I know we've talked about the books and the podcast, but there's also like the big rig boot camp you guys have done. Basically the CLE seminar, it sounds like you're just giving away all your secrets, right? So you mentioned you're abundantly minded, but what was the idea behind that? And it seems like it's been very popular. It has, you
0: know, it started small again. I used to do like a one hour, two hour, you know, come in, have lunch, get some free CLE. Let me give a presentation, you know, locally. And then it kind of grew and then I would have, you know, I would put on a seminar with someone from outside the firm and we'd put it on together. Then it grew to having the confidence I'm going to have a seminar with just me and other people at the firm speaking. And it got to the point where we were getting feedback from the audience and they said, we really want you speaking. We were really not here to hear from other people. And so I was, again, it was a fear thing. So the first time, like, can I have a seminar with just me speaking? Will anyone, I mean, isn't that like really egotistical? You know, will anyone really want to come and listen to me? But I thought, well, I've got stuff to share. I'm wanting to share it. We'll try it. and. You know, it's just, we've done it several years in a row now, and it's really building. I, I was at AAJ. I finally got on with what I call the big stage. Instead of just speaking at the trucking group, I spoke on, on the trial advocacy track. And there are like, I don't know, 50 or 60 people in the room. I'm like, man, I get more people this in this than my own private seminars. And then, you know, I'm used to like 3,500 listening to each podcast interview. So it kind of changes, you know, it used to be, I was dying to go speak at a seminar. And now I'm
1: like, yeah, there's 40, 50 people here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing how that perspective changes, but you've taken your, you know, your brand really into your own hands. In terms of like how you spend your time these days, like what's, what's a day in the life like now? You know, it's really variable. I, I play several different roles. One, I
0: still like being a lawyer. I still try to carve out time to do high value work on cases. Uh, so I do, I set out time to spend, to do brainstorming sessions with lawyers on cases. So we bring it in, we brainstorm. I try to do, and I'm trying to actually get better systems and and leadership in place so I can spend a little bit more time doing legal work right now. I'm a little too much into the management and coaching side for my own happiness, but I try to at least once a week do something big on a case, a big deposition, a big hearing, just because I like that. I spend a lot of time meeting with other lawyers and coaching them, going over cases, going over how they're doing things. Just if you want to run a firm, you can't just expect people to magically do what you want to do. And then I spend a lot of time just communicating with my referring lawyers, lunches, phone calls, meetings, sporting events, fishing, whatever, meals, whatever it takes. But we have our clients who are very, our utmost importance and we owe them a fiduciary duty and we do everything we can to maximize their case, but they have one case. We have our what I call our customers. We have the lawyers that are kind enough to bring us in on cases. That is someone, you know, we have referring lawyers that have been referring us cases for 20 years. That long-term relationship, if you nurture it, can be worth more than any one case. And so putting the time in to make sure they know, you know, not only do we have to do great work on the case, but they need to know we're doing work on the case to keep the clients happy so the clients aren't calling them and, and complaining, hey, they're not getting back to us. So I spend a lot of time just not even so much trying to get new business, but keeping my current
1: people happy and uh, informed and so that that stream of business keeps flowing. And and, and having your hand in so many different things, you know, constantly going on. What are some of the habits that you you practice, whether it's daily or weekly, that help to keep you on track and and engaged?
0: Uh, Well, one thing I've learned is I have to have a good team. And so we have a leadership team that meets weekly. We meet weekly, and then we also do like quarterly offsides, and we set special meetings when we have something that's big. The two partner lawyers, as well as our office manager, and our marketing manager. And and having that team approach makes a huge difference. Learning to delegate to good people, but not just abdicate. I mean, you still have to have standards. They have to report back to you on, and, you know, communicating clearly. What are you going to do? By when are you going to do it? How are you going to let me know you did it? You know, just having a, a shorter to-do list and then a longer, uh, I learned this from Steve Christian who got it from a book, Might Do List. And so, you know, I used to have a to-do list that was way too long and I would sometimes just end up doing easy make work, you know, like I can go through emails all day long and not get anything done, but say that I'm, I'm working. So, you know, having like one or two things that no matter what, I'm going to get
1: this done before I go home and really focusing on those, on those things. And then Michael as we come to a close this being the game changing attorney podcast what does being a game changer mean to you
0: Being a game changer to me means choosing the life I want to live and living it and to me I'm I'm no longer going to try to be the things that I don't like being or that I'm not comfortable being I'm going to find the things that both I have talent doing and that I love doing and I want to focus on that so that I can have a life that I love living Somehow I mean You know, I'm making a good living. I love the cases I work on. I love the people I work with. And I'm still home with my children and wife on weekends and most nights and able to go on trips with them. I mean, it's, I really have a great life. And I've chosen to have a great life. And I'm not going to let other people choose what to do with my time and keep me from having
1: the great life that I want to have. I wanna give a huge thank you to Michael Cowan for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Michael said that the practice of law is all about controlling your mindset and that the best trial attorneys enter the courtroom with a mindset of confidence rather than desperation. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Michael Cowan, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time. We'll be speaking to Tim Grover, the performance coach behind some of the most elite athletes on the planet, including Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. He's also the best-selling author of Relentless and his latest book, Winning. Looking forward to hearing from Tim on next week's podcast, and this is one I promise you will not want to miss.
0: Winning gives you a feeling that you can't,
1: you just can't describe. If your sports team wins, you're up there. Why not have that feeling for yourself? Yeah, it may not be in the sports industry. How about being your own cheerleader and putting that same effort into something that's that important to you. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.